Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here today. Amazing conversation with Dr. Zach Stein. And this is the second episode of the Neurohacker Collective, Ari in the Air podcast collaboration that we're doing. Neurohacker makes Qualia, a suite of nootropic drugs, and they sponsor my extreme sports endeavors as well as being stoked on what I do here on the philosophy side of my life here on this podcast. Zach Stein has known those guys for a long time and has done some work with them on advising them, and which is super rad that he's connected to them in that way. Today, we are talking about basically the fact that humanity has a sick story. Our story that unites us as a species, as a planet, we don't have it. It's fallen apart. And we need a story that will unite us, that helps us pl- helps place us in the universe so we can understand the meaning of our existence here so that we can survive these myriad existential risks. Very encouraging conversation. It's so good. Uh, it's about an hour and a half. I think you guys will really like it. So without further ado, I'll play a little bit of music. Not too much. I also want to shout out to my friends at Neurohacker Collective and encourage you to try Qualia. There is a link in the description below that can get you 15% off of any product. That's with code ARI, A-R-I. And yeah, I highly recommend that stuff. It's amazing. I take it when I do my action sports, like religiously, it improves my performance, like hard stop, very noticeable. So also I am taking philosophical coaching clients. If you've got existential knots that you need to untie, feel free to reach out to me. Ariantheair.com slash coaching has some information and a link for a free coaching call. So you guys, here's my talk, Dr. Zach Stein for the Neurohacker Collective Area in the Air podcast collab number two. Here we go. Zach, thanks for being here. Welcome back. Yeah, it's good to be back. Okay, so you have been doing so much work with Mark Gaffney and Ken Wilber on a story for humanity and existence that is radically positive, and it's a it's a much more encouraging and I would call better story for humanity. Um, there's a couple different names for it that I've heard on Gaffney's podcast. And, um, but I'd love to get a brief overview of this Eros as an animating force for the universe or the Cosmo erotic universe. Hmm. Hmm. Just jump right in. Okay. Yep. <laughs> it's 
So a few things to say. One is, uh, you know, I also work in the field of existential risk and catastrophic risk, and that these things are actually intimately related. What are the things? Uh, the field of existential risk. So those people who are concerned about the most consequential issues facing our civilization, especially those that portend the civilization's self-destruction, um, either through catacly cataclysmic catastrophe or total technologically induced death. So that's X risk. Um, and the work on a fundamentally new planetary philosophy or yeah. planetary religion. Yeah. So the cosmorotic humanist vision is an attempt to articulate the first word in a conversation about a planetary religion of the future or a planetary philosophy, world philosophy. Um, and uh, X-Risk, these catastrophes that are facing us imminently, <laughs> uh, that we're already beginning to experience, is a symptom of the absence of that world philosophy, right? That at the most basic level, uh, we are facing technological problems, of course, and the technological problems will have to be addressed technically. <laughs> but even if we solve all the technical problems, we're still left with the problem, the meaning of why we're here yeah. at all. Um, and uh, so sometimes we'll talk about these three levels in a civilization. One would be infrastructure, which is what it sounds like, right? Highways and electrical grids and supply chains and all of that stuff. And right? so the civilization runs on a certain technological stack, which is its infrastructure. And then you talk about social structure, which is like governance and policy and law, contracts and norms and things of that nature. Um, and then you think about superstructure. So infrastructure, social structure, superstructure. Superstructure are the worldviews and ideas. Um, which justify <laughs> and make sense of yeah. and ideally organize the social structure in a certain way, which then has the ability to make legal structures that supervise the growth of infrastructure. Uh, all three of those aspects of a civilization need to be in some form of coherence or else something gets out of control. Um, the critique of modernity, of pre-modernity, was that superstructure was running the show too much. That as soon as we started to get science and technology specifically, we started to realize, you know, for example, that the earth goes around the sun, that there are germs, <laughs> uh, basic things that the superstructure ideology, absolutistic, the theocratic, pre-modern notions had no room for the realities being discovered about how matter works by the sciences and then proof in the pudding of technology that actually changes everything. So you can have a society that's out of balance in terms of being dictated by its superstructure in a way that ignores the realities at the lower level. We're facing the opposite problem. We're facing a society where the things we think and the worldviews that govern our actions really are epiphenomena of the runaway infrastructure. Um, wow. Okay. So the, just to just kind of put it back to make sure I'm, I have this. The critique of modernity 
or the critique by modernity of pre-modernity was that religion was this monoculture, this monocrop of thinking that was controlling everything. And it once science came in, it essentially threw the baby out with the bathwater. And now in modernity, we have flipped that on its head and we have the monocrop is now science and technology. And we are bereft of a story that unites us and helps us place ourselves in the universe. And the thing that's on a runaway path right now is technology and science. <laughs> and that, yeah. as you're proposed, as you're pointing out, that is a uh, generator function of existential risk of all kinds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's not a bad way to ref to to think about that framing. Another way to think about it is that, <clears throat> so if you use the term ideology, usually it means something bad, right? Uh, usually it means the, the ideas that stop a society from transforming towards something better. So it used to be, even right up until relatively recently, or even early modernity, ideology was a single totalizing worldview that told you what mattered and what didn't, what was valuable, who was valuable, et cetera. And the task of the people who were working against ideology was to problematize the totalizing worldview, was to say, no, 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 it's not so simple, right? Let's think differently about men and women, for example. Let's think differently about the earth and, and animals. So for a very long time, to get out of a society that was a mess, you had to break a totalizing ideology. We're in a situation where the ideology is the absence of a totalizing story. Mm. That the thing that stops us from changing in the ways we need to change is a total vacuum of meaning at the center of culture. And is that is that a relativism? So it appears in most of our decision-making and even in some academic discourse uh, as various kinds of relativism and specifically uh, value skepticism mm. uh, and ethical relativism. Um, those are the, the most common places that shows up. Uh, but it also has to do with a confusion about not just what we ought to be doing, but a confusion about what is the case and what, where are we? Yeah. What is all this stuff? <laughs> like, are we welcome in the universe or not? Mm. A good way to think about the basic question that drives cosmorotic humanism as a worldview. Are we welcome in the cosmos or not? Um, uh, if you answer no, which is what the scientific materialist, late modernist kind of worldview would say, whether they like it or not, the implication of what their whole setup is, is that we're here by chance, that we emerged through random coincidence, that the things that are most precious to us are not precious to the universe. Um, uh, the perception of value, consciousness, all of these things are epiphenomena of what is a completely causal process which we will come to see is actually completely determined, et cetera. Um, and so it's a little bit of a straw man there, and yet it's pretty evident that this is perhaps the default worldview 
of the forces that run. Yeah. Okay. And, and let me just run that back that, that, as you said, a little bit of a straw man, maybe oversimplistic, but the idea that we have emerged out of a purely physical universe through chance that just matter happened to complexify to the point that we grew brains that have started to value things like love that don't actually exist in the universe. Correct. Yes. This is, this is what I'm talking about like that in the center of our culture and the center of the discourses that allow us to make meanings of ourselves as a species and as individuals, there's fundamental confusion. Um, That's the story that's near the center, right? Which is a story that, um, uh, it's a, it's a demonstrably inadequate story yeah. for orienting us as a civilization. Yeah. Um, it's and- not inherently negative because the experience, like the, I would almost put Carl Sagan on that, like just to look out in the cosmos and imagine that it all happened by chance is a potentially awe-inducing moment. But as yeah. you deal with suffering and conflict it's not a sufficiently uh or it i i'm for for what reasons i'm not sure but but it is an insufficient story to organize behavior and thought there well it it isn't and well first of all it's just wrong just even hardcore materialist scientists are now having to grapple with the fact that the idea that it's all random chances it's just incorrect, it's just demonstrably incorrect when you start to look at even the basics of systems biology. Um, and if you start to run the numbers, then it gets weird, um, which is to say just how outside of statistical likelihood is it? And it is astronomically, almost uncalculably outside of, like it's just the chances are so slim that the positive that it happened by chance is not Occam's razor. You're saying that Occam's razor is actually some minimally structured cosmos, right? Uh, at least. So it's not chance. First of all, that's just an error, but then there's something else which happens, which is the kind of existentialist ethos of late modernity, which is a certain kind of like dignity that the human feels in the face of a meaningless cosmos. So there, there's something to that. And this is what all the scientists are galvanizing themselves upon, which is that, you know, you are the most intellectually, like you have the most intellectual integrity if you can stare at a completely meaningless cosmos. Like this is the sense, like that there's something enthralling about you are responsible for giving meaning to the universe. This was. Sartre, this was Camus, this is the existentialist mm-hmm. sense, um, as opposed to having the meaning given to you by some authority or something, or some God you don't believe in, that no, you give me. So that's the, you know, um, that's the sense that you're getting. That's an awe-inspiring sense. Um, uh, 
So that's just interesting to note that there is a certain kind of, I would call it like a, a virtue ethic implied by the scientist's preference for a universe that is meaningless. Mm. Right? Because they prefer to be a person who can stand unflinchingly staring at a meaningless universe. Um, most of our experience outside of the laboratory and outside of the lectern that the professor speaks from, most of our experience tells us that the universe is completely saturated with value and meaning. Just to make a note of that. <laughs> you have to talk yourself out of the perception of value and meaning. Okay. Uh, Can, make that case for me. That uh, the universe is saturated in meaning. So the experience of beauty, I think, is a really easy one. Um, uh, why do we seek beautiful experiences and actually allow beauty into our lives in ways that it makes sense of our lives? Like, uh, so the the overwhelming presence of beauty um, is an example. Uh, another one is uh children uh so the instinctual perception of the value of the vulnerable child wow the mother so if you see a mother caring for a child and you look at the the ease of that dynamic and the and the obvious value of the relationship itself um, just there, like smacking you in the face. Wow. Um, that's another example. Child child raising and intergenerational, I'm a philosopher of education, so intergenerational transmission is very important to me. It's one of those things that like, it's a reality. It's how reality keeps going by through intergenerational transmission. So if there's something that we're saying from the lectern as scientists or philosophers, which if we put it into practice, would destroy the possibility of intergenerational transmission, then it's probably wrong. It's, not, it's like a quality control mechanism for philosophical speculation. If you believe something about the universe, <laughs> which if you put it into practice would make it impossible for you to raise your children, then it's probably wrong. It's the hypothesis. Otherwise, there's a self-destruct mechanism built into the universal epistemology. Which yeah, because... The, the claim there that I'm hearing is that intergenerational transmission is just like hard stop real. And it like, it's hard stop real. And it's the place where we as a species have bumped into reality for as long as we've been around. If it doesn't make it through intergenerational transmission, then it's not going to work. Like if you pass a, Hey kid, here's how you drink water. You actually drink sand. Like, no, no, you can't pass that on. Yeah. Right? You don't pass that on pass that on you will try to and fail your clan will die so this question of what survives intergenerational transmission and what are those things that systematically undermine it um way too rapid technological development which is what we're experiencing now uh -huh. undermines intergenerational transmission uh certain kinds of ideologies which is what we would just be talking about certain kinds of ideologies 
will undermine intergenerational transmission. Right now, we're looking at a combination of both of those. We're looking at an ideology that claims uh, to take all value out of reality um, and even claims the absence of things like free will um, uh, and the, uh, you know, gives causal reductive biological explanations for things like the mother-child relationship. Um, uh, would want to represent representationally redescribe that without the vocabulary of love, attachment, value. Um, Basically, uh, you're pointing towards like the chemical, biological explanation mm -hmm. of why a mother loves a child and removes the essence of love being... Uh, an animating force of that. Correct. And specifically that claims that that redescription of the relationship is the more true description. It's not that that stuff isn't true. It is totally true. <laughs> there's all of these chemical things happening. There's all of these smells. There's all of these like instantly happening mirror neuron neurological processes yeah. that are occurring. Totally. But the idea that that level of description is the more true level of description than the level of description that would involve, for example, the way the mother understands herself and her relationship to the child, the way that the father understands the mother and the child together in the nature of the life world, as Howard was um, that that is an illusion, like a user interface illusion of this more fundamental reality, which the scientist happens to be the only one who can state true things about the mother-true relation, the mother-child relationship. So this is the base, well, another basic argument of cosmorock humanism. You don't need to be a scientist to say things that are true. So the idea that no, you there talking about love and attachment between the mother and the mother talking about this sense she has of being a cosmic force of love, caring for the vulnerable child, that that's all basically folk psychological, naive, uh, inadequate. The scientist who describes that same experience event uh, turns the experience into an event, <laughs> uh, redescribes it chemically uh, in terms of reductive evolutionary biology and those kinds of things, and then claims that that's the truer way to think about the mother-child relationship. That's the main problem. Uh, we're reversing that and basically saying that uh, anthroontology it's a term we use, which is a way of talking about our approach to epistemology. Um, that the anthroontological method is a broadly applicable way for the human to relate to reality, out of which the scientific method was refined. <laughs> that the scientific method itself relies upon a prior reality-engaging dimension of human experience and language that we were saying things about reality that were true before we quote invented science is the case. Then we refine the scientific method out of our pre-existing abilities to know reality, including the reality of value. Uh, and then we have this process for knowing and controlling and predicting and measuring the objective world, which is very useful, which is scientific method. Um, and then we pretend that that's the only way to actually know reality and then forget that we have this eye of value, that we have the ability to perceive value, to know value. The way that you can know weight and length 
right? The way you can know physical properties of the universe through sense perception. You can know the nature of what is valuable through the eye of value is what we'll call it sometimes. McGilchrist in the second volume of The Matter of Things talks about valueception, which is a nice term. Uh-huh. Um, it's like our sixth sense. We can sense, just like we can sense with our eyes, the physical world, we can, humans have an innate value sense that we can tell what is good and what is right. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, that can be distorted, of course. <laughs> And much of the practice here is a practice of self-clarification, the clarification of desire and perception in order not to come to see a meaningless universe, misunderstanding of, for example, Buddhism, that you clear perception and you clear desire in order to have perception of value. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is what's revealed, like uh, that the purified human perceptual system and the purified human heart, which is to say the clarification of desire, uh, will reveal what is actually valuable. Mm-hmm. Right. So this question of, uh, you know, which worldviews are the worldviews that you can actually raise the next generation on in a way that will allow them to be responsible with exponential technology? This is a basic question. We are facing a situation where the next generation will have more technological power than any generation has ever existed and enough to easily destroy the earth multiple times over. What do we tell them is the nature of reality and the human being such that they will shepherd that power responsibly? Is it that they live in a meaningless universe? Is it that what is valuable in the universe is up to them? Uh, is it that they do not have free will and that their most basic choices and ways of understanding themselves uh, as they've been engaging them are delusional fictions, which let's say a physicist or a neuroscientist would somehow know more about the cosmos um, than anyone who would ever dabble in, let's say, religious practices. Right? So it's a basic question. Like, how do we orient the future of the superstructure? How do we orient the future of the world philosophy or the philosophies that will give us a sense of what is the case with the world yeah. and what ought to be the case of the world would we create? Um, so Cosmoronic yeah. Human, is, it's aiming for that spot and it's saying, first of all, let's, let's, let's find a way to diagnose what's insane in the current <laughs> situation and look across pre-modern, modern, and post-modern sources for perennially occurring first principles and values. So it's we call it's a neo-perennialist project. Um, perennialism being like Adolf Huxley and company who saw that all the world religions have a fundamental core set of truths, a perennially recurring mm-hmm. philosophy, the perennial philosophy. So we're yeah. and evolving that notion. Wow, and what a massive undertaking uh once you realize that the stories that we've been telling ourselves and each other are insufficient for our civilization to persist and then asking the question and i loved how you put it what do we tell what worldview do we instill in our children 
so that we can bestow the most powerful technology that humanity has ever seen with faith and 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 trust that they're not just going to blow the whole thing up over yeah. and over so i i think that right there is such a core nomer that's like such an easy way to think about the work that you're doing what do we how do we raise children how do we educate people so that they can have exponential technology which everyone at this point anyone who's listening to this podcast has heard daniel schmachtenberger talk about existential risk and how uh, facebook and instagram are one form of uh, fucking us and setting us on a course that is very difficult to correct from. Um, So I guess it's beautiful. I, I, it's amazing to have this conversation with you. I'm so proud of you for doing that. Um, What a a mess. There's no other option. You know, it's like, uh, and we were, the claim here is not that we are, creating the religion of the future as i said it's like we're looking at that question i'm beginning to to kind of gesture in the direction of what needs to be said the style of philosophizing that's necessary the kinds of arguments that need to be seen the scope of the historical breadth and contemporary kind of like uh, astuteness to be able to address real issues so there's a whole host of kind of necessary and sufficient criteria for an adequate world philosophy um and it's important to get that like now the way it's running you know we've been working on this work around techno feudalism so techno feudalism is a situation where it's like you kind of would want 70 or 80 percent of the population to have a sense that it was all meaningless and they're not in control of their actions and they don't have free will and then they're just basically cattle controlled by you know, the Harare-esque homo deus kind of like breakaway group that actually runs the algorithms that runs the rest of everything. Now, what would be their religion? The religion of the inevitable cyborg overlord transhumanists. So it's not, and so I'm just like laying that out there in a kind of half cheeky way, but saying, depending where this goes, like the play is urgent now yeah. to actually infuse everyone with a, a different kind of world philosophy before we actually get locked in uh, through AI enabled uh, behavior control, essentially, to a completely inadequate and immobilizing uh, worldview. Yeah. yeah. Um, because again, like if uh, it's not a coincidence that we're in this situation, like many causes and conditions came together to disassemble the worldviews that would be empowering in a certain way. Um, so, like, um, anyway, there's more to say about there's more to say yeah. about that. Yeah, can you can you speak to? There's an integration here that I intuit if some people are listening to this for the first time and hearing science dethroned as the arbiter of value in humanity, can you give us a sense of 
where science lands in the hypothetical reorientation of our worldview that points us towards um you know our stewardship of the technologies that we have that doesn't just run us off the cliff right totally um so yeah it's interesting you said science is the arbiter of value because that's really the issue we're not taking issue with science <laughs> we're taking issue with science as the arbiter of value because that's yeah. not science's role yeah. science's role is to tell us what is the case and more specifically how to predict and control material phenomena so science um uh, can i just give my my purse my personal generational story that when we talk about this science as the arbiter of value the story in me comes up very clear very loud that i grew up in it was essentially that because of climate science, we can tell that the world is overpopulated. And so reproducing is effectively immoral. And the implication of that is that humans are parasitic on the earth. Right. Right. And for me, that... I spat it up, but not everyone has in my generation. Not everyone has. And I still see people posting on social media that having children is irresponsible and selfish. Right. And see, so, this, that's not a scientific question. The question of what is irresponsible and selfish is not a scientific question. It doesn't mean that scientific information wouldn't factor in good thinking about that question. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that where you land ultimately will not be a matter of scientific evidence or equations or data sets. Um, so the idea that's that population statistics and climatological work on limits to growth and planetary boundaries tells us certain things about what's the case. Uh, absolutely. Does it tell us then what we ought to do about it? Only if we set some values in place, which mm-hmm. are not determined for us by the science, you see. So like the idea that we're overpopulating and that's bad actually assumes a couple basic values. <laughs> um, and so there's sometimes called crypto normativism, which is a fancy way of saying like, uh, you will always be espousing some value even when you deny value. And so that's why we think science can tell us what's valuable because we put value claims and scientific claims right up next to one another in such a way that we can't tell that we're making a difference. Uh-huh. Um, this happened all over the place in the pandemic and all over the place in medicine and happens all over the place in climate science and in other fields where we actually need to disentangle the ethical issue from the scientific issue only then to reintegrate them. So it's not that science isn't relevant. And so Roy Bascar, who's one of the greatest philosophers of science uh, the last of like the 1990s, uh, talked about the the uh, the dialectic between the descriptive and the prescriptive, right? Or the is ought dialectic, uh, which is that the conversation between is and not. The conversation between is and not. 
um, which is never is finished by either party. That there's course. always a dialectic. So you 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 do want to be informed in your ethical decision making by scientific findings and by what's the state of the world, of course. Um, but descriptions alone can't give you what you need to tell someone what they ought to do. Mm-hmm. Once you've defined the value, then science can be very useful uh, in uh, finding ways forward. Yeah. Like once you decide about the limits of what the limits of what human dignity require for an individual life. That's really the issue of overpopulation. Yeah. Right. What what is a what is a good life that's not misspent, that's better than having not been born? This is the question of of overpopulation. Um and uh and so so yeah so it's a it's obviously it's a very complex philosophical discussion the relation between is and not um and the binding the binding of the claims of science that's what we're looking at we're looking at science having step trying to step into this void that we mentioned it's trying to science is inappropriately stepping into the void and trying to give us an entire worldview but, but science and good scientists will say science is not intended <laughs> to provide a comprehensive worldview. It's not science as a method. Um, so anytime you extrapolate from the various collections of the various special sciences and extrapolate towards some totalizing quote scientific worldview, you're actually stepping beyond science into metaphysics, in which case you better start doing <laughs> metaphysics, <laughs> in which case you won't say these silly things about the nature of reality. Um, which the scientists never said. The scientists make binded, bounded claims. Um, uh, so there's a huge role for science in the, we don't. We're not looking at anything other than a high tech future. Like we're we're looking at a future dominated by high technology, which means science will continue to advance, and the technological application of science will continue to advance. The question is how to place science within its appropriate context in a broader framework of human meaning making system um yeah because for a while while, science had to compete against religion yeah in the halls of power so that could this is more like a synthesis of and a, a proper nesting of science beholden to value yes this is the idea and then it comes back to the infrastructure social structure superstructure that the, the right relationship is multi-dimensional it's not just simply one way in either direction but you certainly don't want it one way <laughs> where infrastructure which is to say the way the commodity supplies work tell us what our laws ought to be and those tell us what we ought to think and that's wow. the situation now basically where the way the economy needs to run to continue to grow tells us what our laws need to be and our laws basically downward into telling us what we ought to think is valuable. So that's obviously ass backwards. Um, and so in that mix, um, insofar as techno science was wedded to capitalism, we are in a situation where most of what we refer to as quote science is very far <laughs> from quote, true science, if I can put it that way. 
Uh, so I would actually love to see science. How would that be? Instead of having capitalist techno science, which is the kind of yoking of scientific methodologies to profitable technological development in biomedical industries, transportation, commodities, computing, all of those things. We're looking at science for the sake of profitable technology. This is not science. It's not science. It's well, science is in there, but it's science for the sake of profitable technology. Yeah. The idea of the kind of Charles Sanders person's idea of like a, a true university with true scientists where there would be nothing blocking the way of inquiry, certainly not anything distorting the path of inquiry towards the means of most rapid profit. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, if we, if we put science in proper relation to value, we would rescue science from its appropriation by the wrong value set. Uh -huh. So this is the idea we're actually rescuing science. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I'm critiquing it, I'm critiquing usually it's inflation into an entire worldview uh -huh. or it's coupling to techno scientific apparatuses, which are so demonstrably powerful that we just kind of bow, kind of bow down uh -huh. in front of the power of techno science and don't know what else could possibly replace it. Uh, so so in that sense, there's a huge role. We actually want to liberate science from its shackles uh, in our reductive worldview. And then you'd have all kinds of science going on. Because like there's other science than just material sciences, right? Like Schrodinger, like right? Um, like all of the work in extrasensory perception and altered states of consciousness. Um, biosemiotics, like there's a remarkable amount of work um, that's just not incentivized. Uh, okay. right now. Yeah. So science is, is unconsciously coupled to values and we want it to be consciously coupled to values. Mm -hmm. If we turn back the clock 24 months, I think that we, at least in my life, my experience around COVID was the quintessential experience of science being the arbiter without checks. There was no checks during COVID. Everything was listen to the scientists, trust the experts. They will tell us what we ought to do. The amount of people that died alone in hospitals uh, without their families around is the only piece of evidence that I need that we were misleading. We were astray and we had lost our sense of values there. I'm curious um, your thoughts on covid essentially and how we how we uh how we address that you know i feel like you your rise into my awareness was from the article that you wrote right as covid came online um and i'm curious how you think the whole thing played out and how you can use this example as a way to 
show the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible might have handled such a situation. Interesting. Uh, so I'll speak in with some caution and some generality because <clears throat> I'm not an expert uh, in any of this. Uh, but I did kind of become an expert in computational propaganda. So the, the work that I was doing at the Consilience Project during these years ended up being largely focused on propaganda, the history of propaganda, and specifically the contemporary context of digital propaganda. Um, and it's, it's, it's very important to understand that what occurred uh, when the COVID situation began to escalate uh, was one of the most complex situations of informational warfare ever. Yeah, I mean, it was it was vast, vast. Uh, um, fog of information war. Yeah, put it that way. Um, and so anyone interested in thinking about what happened because that's the experience like what happened yeah <laughs> you know um no matter which court side you're on like that it's framed that way as an example of information warfare yeah. first of all there would be sides about such a thing yeah. is a tool of information warfare uh and if you're wedded to your side then they got you yeah. <laughs> Right. Like if you have a problem thinking that this shouldn't be characterized in terms of sides, because you know your side is right and the other side is wrong, then you are, they got you. Right. And it's important to get that like the digital propaganda, the computational propaganda is, is overwhelming in many people's experiences. Um, so much so that they cannot separate their own thoughts from thoughts that were given to them during a two hour long trance-like social media excursion. Mm -hmm. We can talk more about the mechanisms by which the computational propaganda is having more impact than any prior forms of propaganda. Um, and the fact that it lowers the bar of entry into information war. So whereas when the polio vaccine was rolled out, it was a stunning national PR success <laughs> when the polio vaccine was rolled out. Uh, it was part of the Cold War. It was science triumphing over disease. It was us taking care of our kids. And there was no countervailing propaganda. If there were other statistics out there, no one had access to them. <laughs> no one certainly was able to get something as convincing as a nightly news broadcast from their basement gone viral and seen by millions of people. So the barrier of entrance into the information war was lowered, which meant that the old guard legacy institutions were running a centralized propaganda campaign against a massively distributed and empowered counter propaganda campaign. And in the mix of both of those were very complex geopolitical interests 
that were turning the volume up on the entire conflict in order to create cultural instability, specifically, I believe, in the United States. Um, so the thing got completely out of hand. Wow. Uh, and many people on both sides were drawn into the line of fire in an information war with weapons way more powerful than people believe. Um, so there's an article in the Consilience Project website called Social Media Enables Undue Influence. And this is the key text. It's the climax of all the propaganda series. There's about four or five papers in propaganda. This is really the climax because it outlines just how radically different handheld computing, social media enabled propaganda delivery is. Mm. Um, that it actually structurally replicates the kinds of situations that are created in prisons and re-education camps and cults that are akin to brainwashing. So there's a very strong claim, but it's, it's laid out in this article. So undue influence is a technical legal term that just basically means like this person's not accountable for their actions because they've been so manipulated at the level of thought that they're not thinking their own thoughts so we can't put them on trial. So the classic cases here, classic cases here are people who've been inducted into cults and then done things while in a cult, which months after they come out of the cult, they can't believe that they did it. They just can't believe that they did it. And then they're standing trial for it. <laughs> and so, and that the most famous case of undue influence is Patty Hearst. It's probably quite a famous story. She was a very wealthy daughter of a billionaire who gets captured by leftist radicals and kind of locked in a closet and various things occurred that led her bad things, various bad things occurred, which led her to believe wholeheartedly the beliefs of the leaders of this group. Now, why would you do that? For many, many reasons. This is undue influence. You yeah. create a context where people are confused, disoriented, their identity is at stake. They're overwhelmed. They're getting information from all these sources. A certain amount of clarity is delivered about repetitive messages. And you begin to repeat those thought terminating cliches in order to preserve your identity in an overwhelming and kind of like um, uh, hypnagogic type of situation. So Patty Hearst ends up uh, becoming a leftist radical and robbing banks and killing people <laughs> uh, and goes to prison for it. And years later, it was actually oh, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton pardoned her based on these types of arguments, based on the idea that, okay, she was under undue influence when she carried out those tasks. So undue influence exists. It's a known legal category. It's a known psychological process that yeah. someone can put in a context where they are subject to undue influence. So Yeah, and you said hypnogogic. That's like hypno and pedagogy together it's like hip being educated while you're hypnotized well hypnagogic is just a reference to a certain kind of state so like if you are deeply sleep deprived uh you will go into what's called a hypnagogic trance where you're awake and you're doing things but you're not totally there uh -huh. um, and so if you're trying to bring someone, if you're trying to basically coerce someone into believing certain things or doing certain things, sleep deprivation is a great way to do it. Um, so there's a, so in the article, we lay out these structural properties 
specifically from the work of uh, Robert J. Lifton, who studied uh, uh, Korean brainwashing camps set up by Chinese communists during the Korean War. So he studied American GIs who got, who decided not to come home because while they were in captivity, they became communists. Um, uh, so he structurally analyzed what does it take to basically kind of like break someone's mind and insert your own thoughts in it. Um, and so in this paper, I, I characterize those structural qualities <laughs> with what it's like to be on your phone, on a social media app. Uh, and they were remarkably similar, like to the point where you realize that, oh, they were scientifically designing this to be a behavior modification system. Like if you get it, that's what Facebook, that's what they all are. How do they make their money? Advertising. What is an advertisement a claim to be able to do? Advertisement is a claim to be able to change someone's behavior. Insofar as the basic value proposition of their business is to be a, be, a behavior modification technology, uh, that it would make sense that they would design it to be as efficiently and, eff and effectively modifying behavior as possible. Um, so they may not have been trying to create a brainwashing machine, um, but they did. They created a brainwashing machine that sits in the palm of your hand. Um, uh, and so you can see how this undermines many of the most basic principles that an open society runs by, both the market and voting. So the idea of uh, being able to make a decision about what to do with your body with regards to a medical intervention. Um, either way, if you decide not to, or you decide to do it, <laughs> you actually haven't been put in a place to make up your own mind. Wow. Because the main source of information, the main environment in which your mind is being shaped is one that's fundamentally coercive. Um, it's not designed to get you to deliberate carefully. It's designed to get you to accept thought terminating cliches for social approval. It's the main mechanism that you brainwash by. You put someone in a very difficult social context where they're constantly being observed and you make it so that only certain ways of speaking are rewarded. Um, and then you reinforce and you reinforce and reinforce and reinforce. And so the thought terminating cliche uh, is the standard kind of like mimetic tool of choice yeah um and that was happening on both sides during COVID. No, it's both yeah it's not that one side had the truth and the other side is deluded is that both sides are being systematically propagandized um by various actors uh and the funny thing was that um uh no one really cared that's what's important to get about uh, certain forms of information warfare, which is that um, uh, you are preying upon very base human instinct um, and you're tinkering with a part of the brain that's very primal. Um, so uh, this is why people get so guarded in conversations because Everybody does. They don't know what they're talking about. Like if every, if you're being honest, you don't know what you're talking about. Everyone knows that. 
but what do we want to do? We'd rather just fucking fight. We'd rather just fight. Uh, and so this is important to get, that's part of what it is. It's not making it so that only a certain conversation takes place. That's kind of old school propaganda. Mm-hmm. You could kind of control two or three television stations and a limited number of radio stations. You could have like a one centralized propaganda campaign where you only have a certain conversation. Yeah. But again, we're in a different situation where it's about creating the impossibility of conversation. Oh. It's impossible to have conversation. Wow. Uh, uh, and this is the most dangerous thing that has occurred in this whole mix. And it started with the 2016 presidential election, but it it climaxed with the kind of COVID situation, which is just information weapons of mass destruction, a computational propaganda powerful enough to destroy the basic resources of the shared intellectual, epistemic, intergenerational commons, right? So you see what I'm getting at, which is that we start to deploy these things in a politicized context, which make it impossible for conversations to happen about very important issues. That creates like a radioactive effect that starts to seep out of its intended domain of application into all domains of human communication. Mm -hmm. So we're in a situation of being trained to be bad faith communicators online Uh, And having most of our consequential thinking about the so-called most important topics being in context, we're being trained to be bad faith communicators, which means knowing we don't know what the hell we're talking about, but pretending we do just to argue with this guy and then using, you know, stuff that we know we don't really know, but it's got the, so, so you see, we're just, the bullshit, we're very comfortable with bullshitting them, bullshitting ourselves. But then we get in a situation like with children or our parents or partners or working colleagues where we actually have to have a consequential conversation about something difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're unable to do that anymore. <laughs> wow. uh, we are we're being disabled in the art of communication. Of discourse. Uh, and uh, again, it's intentional. It is not an accidental side effect of just more technology. It's very intentional in the way that the technology itself is designed as an advertisement behavior modification machine. And then the mimetic payloads are delivered by the propagandists who know that it works that way. Right. Like, uh, so it's, it's, that is, that is some thick shit. Yeah, then this yeah. is my main stance on COVID. It's like I'm a, we can't actually talk about it. That's the thing I just said. Yeah. Is the point they're making is that huh, it'd be cool if we could actually have a conversation about COVID. That would be cool. We haven't. We haven't. We can't actually. Uh, any words that I would choose to use now to discuss it, perhaps even the words that I have been using, uh, would be. Uh, unable to be received because of pre-existing thought terminating cliches. Wow. Um, as this is a, this is like the biggest thing and many topics have this property now, even individuals have this property. You just can't talk about them uh, because the entire landscape of available semantic opportunity, which is to say the words you could use <laughs> have been already brought into the informational war landscape and kind of like booby trapped 
Uh, so this question of like how to create conflict-free zones in the information war where people can actually communicate again becomes very important. Um, wow. And how to be aware of how powerful these things are. Um, these cell phones. The, the, the cell phones. The cell phones, the, 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 the digital media, um, and specifically the uh, the participation in it, because that's the thing. Like, so at these re-education camps, it was like you'd sit a bunch of GIs in a circle. They haven't slept in days, and they're malnourished, and you sit them in a circle. <clears throat> Two of those GIs are already tortured enough that they're siding with the guards. Yep. And then you force that circle to have a complex conversation about democracy versus communism. Uh, the people who start saying the things that the guards want them to say, which are thought terminating cliches about, um, you know, capital, that, that thought is a capitalist ideology. As soon as you can do that well, no, 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 that thought's capitalist ideology. Then you get rewarded. Maybe you get to sleep. Maybe you get some more food. So you're participating in a social space that's rigged with thought terminating cliches, that's then rigged with reward systems to reward you for using them. So if you're on social media, most of the time you know what it would take to get attention uh -huh. and to get approval because it's already rigged in the language, which is why I can predict what you're going to post, which is why I can predict what you're going to say when we talk. <laughs> because you're in a situation of having been filled with thought terminating cliches because they're the things you get approved socially for using. Um, and they're designed. Like even the term anti-vaxxer is designed. Yeah, it is. It didn't always exist. Yeah. It has a, had a very recent ascendancy and it's loaded in such a way that it is a weapon. Yeah. It is not a term one uses to communicate. No, it's not. I want you to double click on the part where basically because we went through this experience where our heads were in the crosshairs of this information war, the experience bled out into our interpersonal relationships. How, why, how might someone know or recognize that having happened to them by the types of discourse that's having, that's taking place in their home? Hmm, right. So there's another consilience paper just called The End Games of Bad Faith Communication. A great one. That's a great one. So this one's about this topic, basically. And it, you know, it outlines all the various strategies of bad faith communication, which are the very stuff of our social media communication. Um, so generally speaking, the ability to communicate in good faith is the ability to have a conversation that both parties believe is worth continuing to have, basically. So it doesn't mean you agree. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even mean you don't argue. But you argue in such a way that you both, when time's up or whatever, you have to go to bed or whatever, you, you both, it's just worth continuing to argue. Yeah. Which means that you have not, you've stopped short of the disagreement leading to a dehumanization that the disagreement leads to a fundamental dismissal of you and your views, 
period, the belief that I have nothing to learn from you. Uh, so mm, in so that far, I have nothing to learn from you. That's the idea, which means that like, why should I keep talking to you? And if, if you encounter someone who's a bad faith communicator, which means that they're deceptive, they're um, using name calling, they are uh, acting in ways where they're making threats, they are um, using hyperbolic redefinition of terms and like all kinds of tricks to basically win an argument rather than maintain relationship. Right. Whereas good faith communication system, no. <laughs> Primary to the argument is our ability to stay in relationships so we can keep arguing. So therefore, we have to have a baseline of mutual respect, which doesn't mean agreement. Again, it doesn't mean agreement. <laughs> this is the big mistake in understanding what democracy is. It's not everyone agrees. It's actually how do you, in good faith, disagree? That's what democracy is about. How do you lose in such a way? that you continue to remain engaged and committed. So there's a non-naive, post-cynical, good-faith communication, which is possible. So to rewind, so uh, insofar as you communicate in ways that uh, assume your view is correct, that's not good. Now, unless it's something obvious, like you didn't let the dog out today and the the guy didn't let the dog out today. So, but if you get up into above outside of that every day, easily demonstrably true or false thing, when you are talking about a geopolitical issue or a political issue or a, or a medical issue, many medical issues, a whole bunch of other things, um, and you are not curious about people who disagree with you, um uh that's not a good sign um, uh as soon as we're in a situation where uh the people who disagree with you become morally bad by virtue of disagreeing with you then we're also in a bad situation and then we're descending towards bad faith communication which uh is strategic and coercive which means the the main interest in bad faith communication is achieving some outcome other than the outcome of continuing to communicate in good faith yeah so advertisement is a classic example of bad faith communication because it's uh, going towards an end of you modifying your behavior towards buying something correctly and it may be the nicest conversation you've ever had but that's the point <laughs> is that they're actually using the emotional tone and the agreeableness and other things to manipulate you in bad faith. Yeah. Um, uh, and so most bad faith communication masquerades as good faith communication. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, yeah, so it's, so the, the problem with social media also is that it does not enable long form complex exchange of ideas so another sign uh, that you're kind of getting off of <laughs> good faith communication uh, is the temporal duration yeah your actual communication exchanges yeah. um, so 
insofar as you get impatient quickly during a disagreement. This is both a sign that you're not curious um, uh, and a sign that you're not like um, uh, willing to do what it takes to maintain relationship and, and keep the conversation going. So uh, quick, dismissive conversations. Yeah. Which is perfectly indicative of Twitter, of Facebook. Which is how they're designed to be. Yeah. And the only argument you can make in a quick, dismissive conversation is one that uses thought-terminating cliches. Mm -hmm. And so that's the final, most obvious bit, is how often do you use thought-terminating cliches? Just define that. Just So a thought-terminating cliche uh, is a phrase that can be used to terminate a conversation uh -huh. essentially it's a phrase that is used as a replacement for thinking that will in most contexts if it's used correctly function as if it was good thinking so it's like a token you use <laughs> that functions in a social space like hey that guy just made an incredible argument against you and now you must gracefully get off the stage because you were just so well argued against but all you really said was for example follow the science yeah that's a great example of a thought terminating cliche um and they're everywhere an advertising jingle is a kind yeah. of thought terminating cliche uh -huh. um so in so and so this question of how often when you are searching for language to describe something, are you pulling upon, you're always pulling upon other people's language. So it's not about having a personal language, but it is about having phrases in the culture that are very popular and that can be used as rallying cries and that can be shown as a signal or a flag in the information where that you can kind of plant and just like, uh -huh take your side and kind of shut the whole thing up yep um, so so be very wary of, of people who um not just like happen to use thought terminating cliches but use them as as weapons that yeah weaponize the social credence of it mm -hmm. um and, and these are of course very difficult conversations to be in because because someone will say a phrase and think that they just like solve the problem, yeah. <laughs> but they just uh, beg the question. So yeah, and it's interesting. You said that be very wary of people who will use blank, and I feel like at this point in civilization, it might be best if we just accept that all of our water is poisoned by this. The amount of people who like have a really close eye on language that know about good faith communication to the degree that they can guide themselves and others towards communication that is reciprocally worth having for them that deepens their understanding of one another and the world is incredibly fucking rare, right? This is like, it is so incredibly rare. So I, I feel like we just have to start with like, we're all fucked up. Like our language, like we are totally poisoned. And I have 
worked so hard over the last five years with nonviolent communication and like different ways that help me see what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. And I, um, I have a really astute close eye on language and I'm still just like so far from having consistently good faith conversation all the time. Right. Like it's just like my ego and my conditioning just use all of this stuff that I've been so indoctrinated with uh, so conveniently, right. As a way to like manipulate my world. So I think that we have to like kind of admit that we're all fucked in this exact way. And only once we can admit that, can we start the work of trying to um, unfuck ourselves. Um, and there's another thing that I love about this, which is that the quality of your intimate relationships is absolutely dependent on the same thing that democracy is. The same thing, our civilization, like our civilization, as you've laid it out, and your partnership with your girlfriend, with your husband, like the quality of your relationship with your children is on to no small degree predicated on the exact same thing. Your ability to be curious, to be open to be conscious of what you're communicating and why, to be specific with your language, all of these things. And I think that that is such a beautiful thing. So as a, as kind of a closing thing, it's, I would love to tie that idea that our interpersonal relationships and our ability to make sense of the world just inherently is tied to the larger metaphysical worldview that we all hold. And it's of quintessential importance what you're doing to pull the thread from all of human wisdom these perennial ideas of what humans value and what nature values into a coherent story that will guide us and place us in the universe is a similar thing to what we need to be in good human relationship with our neighbor, with our child, with our partner. Right. Yeah. When in cosmoronic humanism, one of the places where we identify so one of the deepest sources of the meta crisis, one of the deepest sources of catastrophic risk is what we call a global intimacy disorder. That's exactly what you're describing. It's a, it's a multi-level intimacy disorder. So it's an intimacy disorder at the lowest level of parent and child and spouse, spouse to spouse. But then it's also intimacy at the cultural level and then intimacy at the planetary multinational level. Um, and one of the key things in the work is this very specific ways of defining values. So intimacy is a value. We actually really value increasing and deepening intimacy. So does nature, by the way. One of the ways of thinking about how evolution works is that evolution is just increasing intimacy, which is another way of saying increasing complexity. Um, so but that's a 
little bit of a sidetrack, but you don't get intimacy in the way we define it without a shared. So it's basically like shared identity in the context of relative otherness with a shared pathos and a shared sense of what's valuable. This is what is intimacy. If we just merge as one, where we all become basically identical, homogenous, easily interchangeable, then that's not intimacy because then you just have one. So you need shared identity in the context of relative otherness, which means we need to be different and yet one. <laughs> uh, and then part of what allows for that superordinate sense of oneness, even though we're separate, is a shared sense of value, a shared story, that we live in a shared story of value. And this is true, again, at every level. If you're in a relationship with someone and the way you make sense of the world and the meaning of your life is fundamentally different than the way they make sense of their world and the meaning of their life, um, it's likely the more you grow intimate with them, the more your sense of what life is about will become similar. That's mm -hmm. one of the ways you think about what it means to like deepen in friendship is to be more and more living inside the same story of value. Yeah. Um, and then you trust, right? And this is one of the ways to think about rekindling good faith communication. And you mentioned this before we got on with your sports background and that certain kinds of relationships with men for you are easy because you do it in a context where your lives depend on each other. And so this becomes very interesting because as soon as you take the conversation out of the abstract and into something very real that has to be done, that we both want done and need done, then you're going to communicate in good faith or you will fail. Oh. So like, um, the best prescription for people who are arguing about COVID <laughs> is to force them into a situation where they actually have to cooperate about some local issue that they both want to solve. Yeah. And then as much as they might want to deceive each other and call each other names, there'd be this baseline of like, well, you know, how long is this board? And he measures the board and he tells you how long the board is and you put the board in the bookshelf and okay, like we're communicating now. Like, so there's a way in which that, um, very simple return to obvious value. Yeah. This is my whole point about metaphysics, uh, which is it's not about crazy speculative new age ayahuasca stuff. Like metaphysics is right here, dead sober between you and me. Um, simple things that are valuable. Um, and so returning to a shared story of value at multiple levels. And so cosmoronic humanism as a world philosophy is attempting to weave a story of value that could unite humanity at the highest level. Um, and, uh, you know, in the absence of that, you get um, everyone living in their own individual story of value. Like that's yeah. the, the end game of total relativism is a kind of value solipsism. Uh, where we may coordinate our behaviors because it's mutually beneficial, but there's not intimacy. We're actually strangers because we're living in different worlds. And that's increasingly how it feels because the technology is algorithmically radicalizing you, bringing you down into these algorithmic rabbit holes, which are narrowing down more and more the other people who share the values that you share into these extreme small peer group demographic groups, which are an artifact of the algorithmic 
radicalization. So moving into a kind of algorithmically induced solipsism is very lonely. <laughs> uh, and so therefore we start to relate to everybody strategically. So yeah, so the global intimacy disorder um, at multiple levels uh, is root of the crisis. We'll never be able to coordinate the solutions necessary to the meta crisis. Uh, and we will be out of touch and out of step with reality itself, which moves towards deepening intimacy. It moves towards deepening intimacy, um, compounding, deepening intimacy. And we are now in a position to either move towards a much more radical fragmentation, which would be extremely dangerous, a kind of techno-feudalist fragmentation into a thousand different religions of the digital age, basically all warring with each other. Mm -hmm. Or we move into a radical homogenization with a kind of techno-autocracy, if you will, where intimacy is lessened because difference is lessened. Um, uh, so this third attractor that we talk a lot about is that difference between those two, which is a particular kind of digitally enabled deepening of intimacy, um, uh, which would allow again for trust and a whole bunch of other things. So if, if you think about collective intelligence, if you think like, okay, democracy is supposed to be some kind of form of collective intelligence, ideally, like that's mm -hmm. theoretically how it competed, how it competed the king and the feudal system and stuff was this distributed collective intelligence network. It's a way of saying intimacy. <laughs> Uh, that collective intelligence is a function of actual intimacy. Um, uh, so, yeah, I guess we have to we have to double click on this. This your use of intimacy, I think, is outside of most people's understanding of the term. And you said that it was akin to complexity. Go ahead and just draw the parallel between intimacy and complexity here. Right. So if you think about major evolutionary transformations, like, for example, the emergence of a single-celled organism, or even the emergence of an atom, what you have is the coming together of previously distinct parts into a new whole. Uh, and that is a way of talking about something like a configuration of new emergent intimacy, that these parts which used to be disconnected are now actually inextricably bound together with a new higher order function mm -hmm. and actually a new kind of quote shared story about what they're doing together, if you will. Uh, so in a very real way, when you, when you have uh, what's called in complexity science, autocatalytic closure, when a very complex set of disparate parts all of a sudden lock into a higher order pattern, that emergent higher order pattern out of the disconnection into the new fluid unity uh, is a way of thinking about intimacy. So that's the relation between complexity and intimacy. The kind of interiority yep. of complexity science is something like a science of, of intimacy. And then we experience it. Uh, and the term it has connotations of like, romantic intimacy, uh, which is fine because that's where we've kind of relegated the most intimacy possible in our strange civilization. 
but in fact, intimacy uh, is a currency that runs throughout all human relationship, and we can feel different depths of intimacy and the deepest, most powerful things that occur and emerge in human relationships and societies are greater amounts of intimacy, right? So yes. think, about the, think about the civil rights movement. What was that about? Right? What are all the calls for social justice about, whether they're confused or not, right? Like what is the glorious part of planetization? Yeah. Right? Like what yeah. were all, like all of these things where the trajectory of evolution seems to be moving us into deeper connection for better and for worse, because intimacy is painful, <laughs> right? Intimacy is not like, yay, let's hang out and snuggle. Intimacy is like, we are going to um, truly remain distinct and yet merge our identities as much as possible while remaining distinct, which means total mutual learning, total mutual penetration while still individuating. Um, yeah, is what happens like in a forest, for example, like the tree behind you is completely, if it remains a healthy tree, it will deepen its intimacy with the earth and the water underneath it. It will spread its canopy larger to deepen its intimacy with the sun. And it will, through the deepening of intimacies with the rest of the ecosystem, be more strong as an individual tree. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that kind of dynamic of intimacy that flows through all ecosystems yeah. and human relations. So to, to run the intimacy definition back here, it's essentially interconnectedness, interdependence, um, interaction almost at its simplest. And the way that I'm kind of understanding it is that the way we're currently defining intimacy is basically where a man and a woman, to make it the most conservative example, the man and the woman are individual wholes that then come together to make a higher order whole as a couple. Mm -hmm. The same thing, the same term of intimacy there where they, through intimacy, become a higher order whole of a couple could be used to define or describe electrons, protons, neutrons, all coming right. into a higher order synthesis as an atom, atoms to molecules, molecules to cells, cells to organs, organelles, organs, yeah. organisms, yeah, ecosystem, that, that. the whole thing. It just penetrates all of, and as Ken Wilber made, I I almost said famous, but is Ken Wilmer famous? <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have really famous philosophers, and that's another that's another <laughs> problem that we have. Um, but like uh whole like whole ons all the way down, all the way up. Like there's you know, right. everything is an individuated whole that is seeking intimacy to integrate into higher order synthesis and complexity. Yeah. And so this is an example where cosmorotic humanism tries to take things like evolutionary and complexity science, re-articulate them in a way that makes us feel like we're welcome in the universe, which is what you did, where you said basically like, listen, the relationships that we form with our significant others, and then the relationships we form when we join organizations, join whole countries and states, that those relationships are continuous evolutionarily with this multi-billion year history of cosmically arranged relationships, basically. Yeah. Um, 
And so therefore we can either align with the intrinsic value of these forms of intimacy, uh, or we can build these weird fractured relational interfaces, which is what we're doing now, which create semblances of relationship without deepening intimacy. This is bad faith communication, transactional interaction, digitally mediated um, objectification, things of that nature. So that's the main goal, right? It's to, it's to draw into the explanatory fold mm -hmm. a human, right? That human relationships are not somehow some completely new class of phenomenon in the universe, and therefore we can do whatever we want in human relationship. Actually, no, we're bound by uh, certain presuppositions of value, um, which we will suffer if we deviate from, that's the thing. If, if value exists in the universe, if it's not just up to us, then deviation from it will be self-terminating in the long run. Um, so, so it's important that conversation, as abstract and philosophical as it is, is an attempt to bring human relationships, and specifically the near-term evolution of human relationships enabled by the digital to bring those relationships into the fold of cosmic value um, so that we can actually evolve through this crisis instead of having it be the final crisis yeah. um, would be if we just fragment out into isolated parts. Um, so, yeah. And the, the relational analogy for exactly what you're pointing to there is in your relationship, there can be the fight that ends your relationship, or there can be a fight, a disagreement that through working through it in good faith strengthens the relationship into a higher order thing. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that there's always a way forward. And this is a basic presupposition of good faith communication, that there is always a way forward for the relationship. Yeah. As soon as you decide that there's not a way forward, then you step out of that relationship and into a situation of just strategically interacting. Um, but the presupposition of non-naive, post-cynical, good-faith communication is that just stay in it. There's always a way forward. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, with evolutionary crises, it seems to be the same. Evolution runs on the resolution of crisis, as for billions of years, creates crises and then overcomes them. Um, uh, and deepens the values that it's been expressing all along. So this is the opportunity now of the human um, to step into the cosmic fold and create a future of human relationships at planetary scale that is profoundly humane and sane uh, and good. And aligned um, with the evolution of the universe in the most fundamental ways. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What a beautiful thought and what a beautiful uh, task and, and massive as it is. And um, I'm on board and so grateful and supportive. Yeah, man. Thank you. Okay, you guys. Um, I think that ended in a really nice place. Uh, very uplifting, positive, And I hope that that was clear. The work is so deep. This subject is so profound. It's like such a giant question, right? Like, 
if we're to raise the next generation to be stewards of the most powerful exponential technology humanity has ever known, what do we teach them? How do we raise children with a story, with a worldview? What are the metaphysics that we hand them that keep them from just blowing everything up? It's such a beautiful conversation, and I love how it's tied so intimately to how we talk to everyone in our lives. It's just so beautiful. I love that. It's such a grounded conversation. Zach Stein is an amazing person and human philosopher. I'm so grateful to have talked to him. This is the third time he's been on my podcast. Feel free to roll back. We were talking in May 2020 as COVID swept the world and he was very insightful then as well. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the Neurohacker Collective, Qualia. You guys are super helpful and I took a bunch of those today when I talked to Zach Stein. (laughs) So like I said, there's a link in the description below for you to get a discount on their products. Check out their stuff, Neurohacker. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode, my friends. Thanks for being here. Love you.